Good morning. Good to have you here. We are in the middle of our sermon series on the book of Daniel, which is in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. We've been looking at it. We're right in the middle, and it's kind of a pinnacle chapter. This and chapter 4, chapter 4 and chapter 5 today are kind of pinnacles message-wise of the book. When I was reading the chapter, it reminded me of a headline I saw briefly on the internet. I, don't even, I didn't even read the story, but the headline cracked me up. This right here, it says, Pig in Australia steals 18 beers from campers, gets drunk, fights cow. <laughs> and you just look at the picture of the pig, you know, what? And then it's just, it's funny because, you know, we're sort of picturing the pig, you know, this proud drunk pig uh, doing things that proud drunk people do. And it just sort of is funny to see a pig do be like people in that sense. But in that sense, I was thinking, really, the pig is a good example, a good picture of the character that we see in Daniel chapter 5 that we're introduced to. It's weird because when you're reading through the book of Daniel, you know, the author didn't write in chapters. Chapters were added later. So the part right before this, a sentence right before Daniel chapter 5 verse 1 is the story that Keith talked about last week, Nebuchadnezzar having to come to terms with his own pride. And he says, my sanity was restored when I lifted my eyes toward heaven and realized that God is sovereign over everything, gives me everything that I have, and then that's all we hear of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years. He died in 562 BC after a 43-year, 42-year reign, 43-year reign. And remember, Daniel came in at the very beginning of that, so he was there all those 43 years. But then now 22 more years after his death has gone by, and it we're fast-forwarding the very next sentence, fast-forwards to the last night of the Babylonian Empire. So Daniel was there. We're brought in at the very beginning in chapter 1, and now chapter 5, verse 1, is the last night of the Babylonian Empire. And we're introduced to a guy here named Belshazzar. Let's look at it. Verse 1 says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Now, it's weird because it's a little confusing, right? Because we've been reading the word Belteshazzar. That's the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave to Daniel. It's, it's a name that meant may the lady of the god Bel protect the king. That's the te part. Bel is the god. Te is the lady or queen or whatever. Wife of Bel, protect the king. Well, this king is named Belshazzar, same Babylonian god, May Bell protect the king. That's why the, it gets, gets confusing. That's not the only problem, though, with the name Belshazzar in this chapter. Because, see, none of the, when you go back and look at the ancient list, when you go back in history and archaeology and you find these ancient lists the Babylonians made of their kings, the name Belshazzar doesn't appear on any of them. He's not listed as the king of Babylon. In fact, you know, you have a list of the kings, and so you had Nebuchadnezzar, which is the big founding father, so to speak, of the Babylonian Empire, reigned 43 years. And then after him were three kings. Their, lane, their reigns were really short. They were all kind of killing each other and taking the throne, and it was short term. And then, the, according to all these lists, the last king, who was king when the Persians took over Babylon, was Nebuchadnezzar. He's the last king, and he reigned for a while, and there's no mention of Belshazzar. 
So, you know, for years, if you took a religion 101 class or a history 101 class or read a commentary by a more skeptical biblical scholar or historian, Daniel chapter 5 was an example of how you really can't trust the history of the Bible. It was written so much later. It's legend by now. The author doesn't really understand any of this, and they just sort of made up something or it just became legend. But you can't, you can't trust the history of the Bible. And so people, you know, freshmen would come to class and say, oh, gosh, I didn't know that. Guess I can't trust my Bible. They wanted to have sex anyway, and so it was easy for them to kind of say, well, I don't have to obey all the Bible, I guess. And so it became very easy to convince young freshmen that you can't trust the Bible. The problem is, eventually, pretty recently, relatively recently, they found another inscription through archaeology, and this one still doesn't list Belshazzar as king. What it does is it tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, the last king of Babylon, kind of ran into some problems with the religious leadership because he, he kind of wanted to worship just one Babylonian god and they, all the other priests of the other Babylonian gods. It became political. So he got asked to go on a pilgrimage and he went to the Saudi Arabian desert for the last 10 years of his reign. And this document said he made his son vice regent of Babylon. So he was a co-king. His son, while the king was away, the official king was away, his son was king of Babylon the final 10 years. You can guess his son's name in the document. Belshazzar. And so Belshazzar, nobody today doubts, nobody doubts that Belshazzar was Nebuchadnezzar's son and that he was a co-regent, he was a co-king, he was king over Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't there during the final years of the Babylonian Empire. And what's interesting is then you, sometimes you read something where somebody else has another thing where you can't trust the Bible's history because we haven't seen this in archaeology. If you remember this story, at least remember this story to realize we haven't dug up everything and archaeology doesn't give us the whole picture. And so just keep that in mind when something doesn't seem to jive and it might help you. But anyway, let's go back and read. It says in verse one, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. And it says, while Belshazzar was drinking his wine. So the way, remember, the Old Testament emphasizes an idea is repetition. So the repeated idea here is they're all drinking a lot of wine. So while Belshazzar was drinking wine, second time it's mentioned, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, now wait a minute, what, I thought Nebuchadnezzar was his father. Well, when the ancient Near East calls somebody your father, or even in the Old Testament when you read somebody, somebody's father, it means their predecessor in that office. So we even have that sometimes, the father of modern medicine or something. That, that Nebuchadnezzar was the father of the Babylonian Empire, and Belshazzar was on his throne, so to speak, so he was his predecessor, well-known, famous predecessor. And Nebuchadnezzar, remember, very the first chapter was the one that took the items from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them back to put them in the temple of the Babylonian gods. So after a lot of wine, Belshazzar decides to do something that Nebuchadnezzar would have never done. He says he had took, he said he ordered that the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. As they drank the wine, there's the third time we read that phrase, so they're drinking lots and lots and lots of wine. They praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, and stone. 
The headline might have read, Young King Gets Drunk, Takes the Stolen Goblets, Fights Yahweh. That's kind of what's happening here. He's sort of picking a fight, in a sense, with the God of Israel by using these sacred temple as just sort of to drink wine to their Babylonian gods. But it's a really weird party because it's a thousand of his leaders, but then it's also all his wives, and then it's also all his love slave, concubines. And they're all in the same room. Now, normally that group wouldn't all be in the same room, but they're all in the same room. And the question is, why? Well, here's the thing. If the, when we look at other non-biblical history of what this night was, we get a better picture of what's really going on in this banquet. Because what we find from Babylonian, ancient Babylonian and Greek historians that were writing near this time is that just 10 days prior to this night, the Persian army had come into Babylon and only 50 miles away from the city of Babylon had utterly decimated the Babylonian army. It was over. The writing was on the wall already. And so it's over. And so now the capital city is completely defenseless. They have a wall. They just don't have an army. And everybody inside the walls are in a tizzy because they know that now the Persian army has made their way and they are literally right outside the door to the walls of the city. And so Nebuchadnezzar's throwing this big banquet. Everybody's in the room. What he doesn't know, he thinks he's got a little time. He doesn't have an army, but he's got a wall. What he doesn't know is the crafty Persian army the crafty general had figured out a way to divert the Euphrates, a lot of at least, the div divert the Euphrates River into a basin. And so the river went down short, the, the water receded enough to where the Persian army could walk in under the wall where the river went in, just in thigh deep of water. And so while Nebuchadnezzar, or excuse me, while Bel Belshazzar's having this party, this banquet, the Persian army is walking into the city under the wall. Here's another thing that's interesting. When you read ancient Babylonian and Greek historians, they all say this. They say that the Babylonian army, excuse me, the Persian army invaded the Babylon at night and there was a banquet happening. Pretty interesting. That's non-biblical uh, other history. So there's this banquet happening. Belshazzar is throwing this big wine, women, Babylonian gods party. And the, meanwhile, the Persian army is walking in at night under the walls. He's going to be killed that night. The writing's on the wall. He just doesn't know it's going to be that night, but he knows it's going to be soon. So what's he doing with this party? Well, he's got everybody he cares about, his wives, his concubines, his thousand nobles, everybody that's been with him been part of his kingdom, and they're just going through the stock. It, I don't think it's a thing where he's trying to rally them to resist. It's over. There's no army. I think it's more of an end-of-empire party, kind of a nihilistic, let's feast today for tomorrow we die. Belshazzar at least knew he was going to die. Better to die drunk than trying to fight a winless battle. And so they're going through all the stocks of wine. Why let the Persian army have that? 
They're going through all the stuff they've got. After they've had a lot of wine, they start doing stupid stuff. But this is the kind of party that's happening. And I think that, in a sense, we kind of see that in our culture now, today. You know, we, we, we've, we've sort of we, we've lost the narrative. We, want, we no longer believe the narrative of the Bible that gave us a kind of sense that there's a God that created everything, the God exists, and with a creator comes a kind of transcendence to reality and a significance to life. I'm not saying everybody was like devoted to that belief, but for centuries, that was the background belief of everybody. That was the background belief of culture. In my lifetime, that began to change to where it is now, where now that narrative has been replaced by the freedom to create a new narrative centered on the self, sort of a self-created self, a self-created identity, a self-created significance, a self-created life. My happiness is what matters. I had to choose what was best for me. I decided that what would make other people happy was my own happiness. All these phrases that people say on talk shows and everybody claps because they're, they're saying the liturgy of our day. The problem with that is that if a self-created self is how we're trying to find our significance, how we're trying to find our sense of what makes life about me and makes me happy, the problem with that is, is that eventually death is going to cause the self to be absolutely extinct. The writing's on the wall. Everybody knows, whether consciously or unconsciously, the writing is on the wall. And so if you have this self-created self, and yet you know you're going to be utterly, completely extinct if we've rejected the creator God and transcendence and the significance of life that comes from that, if you're finding it, but you're gonna be extinct, death renders your life meaningless because there's not gonna be any you eventually. Now you might, you know, the cultural cliche is, well, you, you live on in the memories of your loved ones. If that comforts you, let me just tell you, your loved ones are gonna be extinct really soon. In 100 years, they're all gonna be dead. In a hundred years, everybody alive, none of them will know you, ever have known you. So if we're trying to find some sort of a narrative of self-created significance, self-created meaning, self-created self, we know that's going to become meaningless. Life doesn't matter. The self has zero significance. It's like we're footprints in the sand. You know, I'm not talking cliches here, but people talk cliches, so I might well have my own. If you're gonna have footprints in the sand, you think you're making a mark, you think you're making an indentation, you might even do some things to kind of show your footprints, but you know the waves are gonna completely erase them by the end of the day. It doesn't matter how many footprints there are. It doesn't matter how deep they are. They're going to be utterly erased, and that is every self created life. There is no self-created self that has any significance whatsoever. All we are is dust in the wind, Kansas sang in a top 40 song. They're right. Intelligent lyrics. Here's the thing, too, is that the psych, the, a person can't live that way psychologically. We cannot live lives that we know don't matter. We cannot live lives that we know are insignificant. We can't, we, it's impossible. 
So when the writing is on the wall and we know it's just a matter of time, whether consciously or unconsciously, I think we do some of the same things that Belshazzar and his group did. Well, let's just use up the supply. Let's just turn to, let's get the things that came from God and use those to get our significance. You might say they're God replacements. They're cultural gods. And so we turn to things like romance, the pursuit of romance. Just look at Netflix and find out what's trending there. Everything's about, at least there's on there somewhere, always a romance, always a new romance, always something going on where somebody's developing a new romance because at least that is a spark. At least that gives me a sense that I matter to that person. I get this rush of meaning and it gives my life significance. Of course, we have to go from one romance to the next because that, only, that feeling only lasts for so long in any relationship. Or it might be just this endless sexual fantasy or sexual encounters because at least at that moment, life has a spark to it. Life has a thrill to it. At least in that moment, I matter to somebody for a moment. I'm important. Or maybe it's just the idea to to sort of make myself stand out and sort of make myself look special, maybe as an artist, or maybe in some sort of political cause, or maybe some sort of celebrated identity, or maybe through some sort of business success, or maybe through wealth, or whatever it is. These are ways that I show people I matter. I'm important. Notice me. I'm making a difference. Whatever it is, it might just be what they did there. It might just be keep the wine flowing because if the wine is flowing, I don't have to think how my life doesn't matter. So it might be drugs. It might just be shopping all the time. It might be endless entertainment all the time. Or it might just be wine. The wine flowed that night when they knew the writing was on the wall. So it says in verse five, it says, suddenly... The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. Now, here's something interesting. When they did archaeology, they did a lot of archaeology in Babylon. And so when they found the Hall of the Kings, it turns out that they were surprised. They found that the walls had this white gypsum on them. They were all coated with this white gypsum. Which is interesting because you can tell you're reading somebody's memory here. That the hand wrote on the plaster of the wall. They weren't just stone brick walls. They had kind of a white plaster. And we found it through archaeology. And especially if it's against the lamp, you're going to see the writing. And the writing is happening not as a warning for Belshazzar. It's it's over. The writing's on the wall. It's it's done. The Persian army's already walking in. He's already going to be killed. That's not going to change. This is not a warning for Belshazzar. It's not a warning to anybody in the room. The purpose of this hand is to get Daniel back in the room. Because for 22 years since Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel's been ignored. Nebuchadnezzar's the one that had all this reason to love and respect Daniel. But then from then on, not so much. So Belshazzar decides, he's panicking, it says he's afraid, he's turning white as a ghost, and so he starts having to bring in the people from his gods in, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers, and he promises them, if they can explain this writing, because it was just cryptic words that were Aramaic nouns, but they didn't make any sense, if they could explain and interpret what this hand, out of nowhere, just wrote on the white gypsum, if they could tell him what it was and he would give them a purple robe that was a, a royal 
clothing. He would give them a gold chain that was a royal chain. And he says he would make them third highest ruler in Babylon. Now, he couldn't make them second highest because he was the second highest. He's the co-regent. That's why third highest ruler. But none of them could do it. So it's becoming louder in the room. There's more chaos in the room. Somebody who's not in the room is called the queen in the text. Now, not a queen who's one of Belshazzar's wives. She's the queen that historians have so much respect for and have a lot of things. She's well known. She's the wife queen of Nebuchadnezzar who died 22 years before. She's still around, and she's a really wise woman. She's not in the room. But she walks by and hears it. So she enters the room. She looks at Belshazzar, and she says, Calm down. Stop being so afraid. Just get Daniel. Not call Belshazzar by by her. Get Daniel. So Belshazzar gets Daniel. Now Daniel's 80 years old. He's not the young buck who was afraid of Nebuchadnezzar all those years and tried to come in hoping he wasn't going to get killed. He doesn't care. He's 80 years old. He comes walking in, and he treats Belshazzar like a youngling king. And he, he, the first thing out of his mouth, he says, okay, look, you know this happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You know that he got full of pride. He says his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride. He lost his sanity for a while. He lost his throne for a while until he realized the God of heaven controls everything and God restored him. And then so then he talks to Belshazzar and Daniel says this. He says, but you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your, yourself. Excuse me. You have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You remember all that happening in Nebuchadnezzar. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. So Daniel interpreted the writing, and he said, okay, here's what it says. Your days are numbered, and your kingdom has already been given to the Persians. He didn't tell Belshazzar anything he didn't already know. I picture it like a movie. I always sometimes when I read the Bible picture it like a movie. I picture an Adam Driver type character playing Belshazzar and he's standing there drunk and he's really drunk and he already knows the writings on the wall. He already knows his days are numbered. Daniel said all this stuff to him, rebuked him in front of all the nobles, rebuked him in front of all his wives and told him his, his, his days are numbered and he's going to have to His kingdom's already been given to the Persians. And I just picture him just sort of starting with a slow clap. And he ends up keeping the promise, even though it wasn't the news that any king would want to hear, because he already knew it. So the next verse, it says, So then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck. And he was proclaimed the third, because Belshazzar was the second, he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Which, of course, meant nothing. Because this is the last night of the kingdom. None of this meant anything, except when the Persian army came in that night, it says at the end of the chapter, they killed Belshazzar that night. And that night, the Babylonian Empire ended. But that night, when the Persians came in, There's Daniel clothed in purple with a gold necklace around his neck, and he's been marked as a high ruler in Babylon, 
And that will make a big difference in chapter 6 with the Persian in charge of Babylon. So all this was to get Daniel in the room. But all this is also just that whole theme of the book of Daniel. Every chapter, we, we say the same thing because Daniel says the same thing every chapter. Here's what it is. In spite of what it seems, in spite of appearances, God is always in control. And because of that reality, that means when it comes to you, you have to, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, you, me, you have to really be careful about pride. Because see, pride doesn't honor the God who holds in his hand your life and everything in it. Instead, pride wants to have a self-created self. Here's the thing. The irony is, both for Nebuchadnezzar and for Belshazzar and just the way pride works, the irony is the more you embrace pride, the more you become enslaved to insecurity. See, because your soul, deep down in your soul, your soul knows that you really can't have a self-created self and have significance. And deep down, your soul knows that no matter how you try to bring significance to your life, you're not in control. And so it's always going to be enslaved to insecurity. It's always going to have, the, 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 the pride's insecurity is going to enslave you to always having these feelings of inferiority. How are they going to see me? What do they think of me? How do they, how do they see me right now? Am I enough? Pride's insecurity is always going to be enslaved to always having to show, somehow have you know, sparklers and tap dance to show your superiority in some way. And the more you boast and the more you, you know, have this prideful bragging, everybody knows you're insecure because that's what pride does. It has to try to show it's significant. It has to try to get people to see how important I am. Pride's insecurity is going to enslave you to worry. See, because pride thinks you know what ought to happen in your life, but at the same time, it knows it can't control any of it. So pride is always going to have this insecurity of worry. You're never going to be get out of it if you're giving in to pride. Pride is always going to have, pride's insecurity is going to be enslaved to resentment and bitterness. Because people sinning against your sense of significance is the unpardonable sin. When that's the only way you're going to have significance. The self-created self can't be sinned against without bitterness and resentment breaking up relationships. How dare they? Pride and insecurity is going to be enslaved to never being able to move on and to get rid of guilt for your own regrets because you don't want to have to need grace. You won't accept it. Pride's insecurity is always going to be enslaved to some form of tribalism. Because you need to have an evil enemy so that you can show yourself to be righteous. Pride is always going to have insecurity and it's always going to enslave you. It's not going to deliver the promise of giving you a self-created self. It's always going to make you never be able to escape your own insignificance and your own inability to control your life. So let me just leave you with two questions. Here's, here's one. 
and that is, have the things that give your sense of significance replace God as your significance? Are they God replacements? I mean, there's lots of good things, but have they become God replacements to give you your sense of significance? Uh, have they replaced God as your significance? Well, that's going to be a dead end. But, you know, gives this some thought. If you have, you know, if you want to take a picture or whatever, I think we'll have it in the discussion for small groups. But give that question some thought because I think it might free you up on some things that might be enslaving you and you don't know it. Here's the second question. Last question. In what ways has pride's insecurity enslaved you instead of blessed you? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, in your hand, always in your hand, you hold every one of our lives and everything in it. Always. In spite of appearances, it's always in your hand. It's your hand that wrote on the wall and it's your hand that gives us our transcendence, gives us our significance because your hand created us to live in your universe forever because you have this incredibly significant story for us. And we thank you for that as being the basis for our significance and our security. In Jesus' name, amen.